This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas, Masha Freda Bas Isaac. May her soul be elevated in heaven. This is a special edition of the Parsha podcast because I really bit off more than I can chew in this episode. It's a very ambitious one. I hope we are able to pull it off. You listen to it and let me know if we do it and send me an email rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Now, before we begin, I want to quickly talk about our fundraiser that we held last week and we're wrapping up this week at givetorch.org. I want to thank all of y'all for coming out in your masses, in droves and supporting our fundraiser. You know, we work tirelessly the entire year. And I can say this with confidence that we really are committed to this mission. Our mission here at Torch is to connect Jews and Judaism, and we're really committed to that. But of course, we're a nonprofit organization, and the only way we can keep our doors open is if we have your support. And so many of y'all were so incredibly generous and kind-hearted to contribute to our campaign at givetorch.org, it was really unbelievable. Thank you so much for your amazing friendship and kindness and generosity and support. If you have not yet given, I have very good news for you. And that is that till the end of this week, the donations at givetorch.org are still being tripled. You can still jump on the train and support the great work of Torch and the Parsha Podcast and all the amazing stuff here we do at the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. You could still support it and have your donation tripled. Again, this is our only annual fundraiser. We do this once. We're going to do it again. Please, God, with the help of the Almighty next year. But now go to givetorch.org and have your donation amplified. Everything is tripled times three and support the great work of Torch in this Year 2022. Now, our Parsha, incidentally, also contains a fundraiser. Moshe and his lieutenants are fundraising gold and silver and copper, all these precious materials for the Mishkan. And in our Parsha, we read how the fundraiser was a stunning success. And it only lasted two days. In two days, they had to make an announcement going throughout the camp, telling everyone to stop giving. You have to call off the fundraiser because people were bringing too much. I want to say that, thank God, at Torch, we don't quite have that problem yet. We're not quite at the point where we could say, we're good, we're covered. We still have a few spots available. So go to givetorch.org. Everything will be tripled until the end of the week. Thank you so much for your friendship and your kindness and your support. This week we have Parshas Vayakel. Normally, most years, ordinary years, Vayakel is lumped together with Parshas Pekude because this year is a leap year. We have two Adars. Therefore, the two Parshas are split up into two. So this week we have Parshas Vayakel. And next week we have Parshas Pekude. And the sole subject of our Parsha is the Mishkan. This is really the fourth Parsha in a row that at least part of the Parsha is talking about the Mishkan. Parsha's Teruma and Tetzava were entirely about the Mishkan. This week's Parsha, Vayakel. Next week's Parsha, Pekude, entirely about the Mishkan, about the Tabernacle. And last week's Parsha, Parsha Tisisa, was half about the Tabernacle and half about the Golden Calf. This is a long way of saying that the Torah is really obsessed with the Mishkan, with the tabernacle. And for us, we kind of have a hard time seeing what the fuss is all about. We know the Torah is very skimpy, very precise with its word usage. And it seems like the Torah is belaboring the entire story and narrative of the Mishkan. You know, there are multiple times we're told about the construction of the Mishkan. Initially, when God told Tamosha, all the things they need to do, and then Moshe conveys it to the people, and multiple times to read about the appointment of B'Tzalel, and then about the implementation, and then all the materials are repeated again and again, and then the actual construction, and next week we're going to have the totaling of the tallies of all the gold and all the silver, etc. Why is the mission so central? Why is it such a focus? Why 
Is there a need to repeat everything again and again? What are the lessons for us? Now, we have a tradition that the more frequently something appears in the Torah, the more central it is. So, for example, we know the bedrock of our faith is the Shabbos. And Shabbos appears again and again and again in the Torah. And we know that idolatry is the biggest no-no. It appears again and again. And the pursuit of the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the Holy Land, so central, it appears again and again. The Talmud actually points out that in 36 different places in the Torah, it talks about loving the convert, again highlighting how central that idea is. If we have four and a half partios dedicated to the construction of the tabernacle, we have to ask the question, what is so important? Why is this so central? Now, we understand that in the past, they actually had a tabernacle, and eventually they had the permanent temple, and that was the centerpiece of Jewish life in Jerusalem. But we're reading the Torah in the 21st century, and there has to be something in the story, in the narrative of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, that is very relevant, germane, and powerful to us. If the Torah is so obsessed with the tabernacle, it must mean that there's something incredibly fundamental about it. There's something that we, despite the fact that we don't have a temple or a tabernacle quite yet, there's something that we can learn from this as well. What is the lesson of the tabernacle at large? So I want to suggest two, or maybe three, depends how you count it, interrelated approaches to understanding what our relationship with the tabernacle is, or at least what it ought to be. And these ideas are going to demonstrate the centrality of the Mishkan and subsequently of the temple in our philosophy and our life view, our our world view, the way we're supposed to structure our lives, the way we're supposed to focus our lives, the pursuits of our lives, what we're supposed to be after, what's the goal, what's the objective, we'll find very powerful, relevant, and even quite advanced ideas in the Mishkan from our Parsha that I think could help shape really what life is all about for us. In addition, we're also going to learn, in one of the approaches, a fascinating idea of how to unlock the hidden wellsprings of potential that we all have within us. And of course, if that's the only thing that we come away from this, we discover the secret to unlock the latent hidden potential that we all have within us. If we can find a way to unlock that, we are golden. So let's begin. We're going to start off with the, I think, the easier idea and move to the more subtle and esoteric ones. And again, I am fully acknowledging that some of these ideas are really big and maybe we've bit off more than we can chew, but let's give it a shot. That's what we do here after all in the Torch Center, on the Parsha Podcast. So let's begin. Suppose I asked you a very simple question. What are we here for? What is the meaning of life? Why did the Almighty place us here? What are we trying to do? What does it look like? when our mission is accomplished? These, of course, are basic questions that every thinking person will likely encounter in their lives. And we are bold enough to say that we know the answer. And I think that we can legitimately say that the Mishkan, that the tabernacle, represents the fulfillment of the objective of creation. Why are we here? What's the goal? What does it look like 
If we succeed, it looks like the Mishkan. Let's explain. We believe that they might have created two worlds. There's the physical world, and then there's the spiritual world. What's known as Olam Hazeh, this world. Olam Haba, the next world. Our mission as a species, as a nation, as descendants of Abraham, our mission is to create parity between the heavenly sphere and this physical world. Now, this could play out in a few different ways. We could talk about our soul and our body, and those are representative of the two opposite worlds. Our soul is deeply infused with faith. Our soul has a deep, intimate connection with God. It has instinctive trepidation from God. Our soul doesn't need to be taught about faith. It knows it innately. But the body, well, the body marches to its own beat. The body operates as if God doesn't exist. In fact, you could live your whole life as a body and never even contemplate what are you here for? What are you doing? What's your plan when you have your audience with your creator? We are a mashup of two opposites. We got the body, we got the soul. Similarly, on a macro scale, we have these two worlds. We have the physical world and the spiritual world. And our mission is to create parity between these two worlds. To make our body as instinctively aware of God as our soul is. And on the grander scale and the macro level, the macrocosm of that is to make this world a world in which God is obfuscated, a world that's working really hard to obviate the need for God, a world where you look and you look around, you don't see, you don't see God anywhere. In this world, God, by default, is hidden. In the spiritual world, no one denies the existence of God. There are no atheists in heaven, but here there are. And our mission as individuals, and as part of this very exclusive club of people whose souls and antecedents stood at the foot of the mountain at Sinai, our mission is to make this world indistinguishable from the spiritual world. And that's the Mishkan. You should make for me a Mishkan, God says. Make for me a tabernacle and let me dwell amongst you. Let me dwell here in this world on terra firma, on planet Earth, on this world in which, by default, God doesn't make an appearance. We don't see God in this world. Comes along to Mishkan, and there's a palpable presence of God here. Suddenly, our world mirrors the spiritual world. In the spiritual world, God is undeniable. Suddenly with the Mishkan, God's undeniable here too. That's the whole purpose of creation. The purpose of creation is to take a world that naturally, or at least by default, obfuscates God. We can't see God, perceive God, interact with God in any sensory way. The very tools that we use to interface with the world, our senses are precluded from perceiving God. Yet our mission, the task placed upon our shoulders as individuals and as part of this great nation, is to make this world hospitable to God, to banish all the idols, to shatter all the pagan deities, to cleanse the world from any and all antithetical forces and elements to God, to expose God in this dark world. And the greatest representation of that is the temple, is the tabernacle. There's one point on earth that is exactly like the way things are in heaven. And therefore, 
the Mishkan, symbolizes, it is the structure of what life is all about. This is what we're trying to do in our our whole life. Of course, we don't have a temple, but we have the same mission. And it's important for us to dwell upon it, to study it, to read all about the Mishkan, because again, the beginning of the story of the Mishkan, made for me a sanctuary, and let me dwell amongst you. Here, in this crazy, chaotic world, so many atheists, so many things that are so opposed to God to take this crazy, chaotic, insane world and make it like heaven. I'm sure you've heard of the words tikkun olam. Tikkun olam, to fix the world. Most, not all, but many, many Jews are aware of that idea. That string of words, tikkun olam, but there is a much larger sentence. These words, tikkun olam, appear in the Aleinu prayer. And it's part of a larger sentence where we outline our mission. Our mission is to fix the world, b'malchut shakai, with the kingdom of God. Our mission is to fix the world. This world is broken. It's broken because the creator is not present, is not acknowledged and recognized by all. Our mission is to fix the world and to enshrine the kingdom of God in this world, to make this world holy, to create a place in this world that is hospitable to God, to mimic the angels. If you look at our prayers, it's all about us trying to make ourselves like angels. Angels, well, they don't exist in our world. They're in the spiritual world. And they fully acknowledge God. And we're trying to mimic them. In this world, we want to be like angels. We want to be entities that are fully cognizant of the existence of God. We say in our prayers, the Kedusha, the Kaddish prayers, it's all about that. Let us sanctify your name in this world like the angels do in the spiritual world. That is our national goal. That is the mission statement of the Jewish people. That's what Abraham began, and we are tasked with completing. And the Mishkan, above all, represents this idea when it was manifested for all to see. So we don't have a physical Mishkan. We don't have a physical temple. Nevertheless, it is imperative to dwell upon it, to ruminate upon it, because this idea represents the central responsibility of our people. When we started this Odyssey, we read the short but comprehensive mission statement of the tabernacle that I mentioned earlier. Make for me a sanctuary. God wants to dwell here in this flawed, fallible world, in this physical world full of all kinds of forces that oppose God. We are trying to carve out a spot where God feels welcome in. What an amazing idea. It's possible to make a domicile for God in this world. That's really the goal of our life. And it's most embodied by the tabernacle. And therefore, it makes a ton of sense to dedicate a great deal of focus and attention and sections of the Torah to understand precisely how that is done. That's the first idea that we should think about when trying to understand what the mission has to do with us. What does this tabernacle have to do with us? Let's take this a step further. Let's bring it a bit closer. Today, we don't have a temple. We don't have a tabernacle. I could say at least at the time of this recording, at the time of this recording, there's no temples, no tabernacle. And of course, we hope that the temple will be rebuilt speedily in our days. We yearn for its restitution. We pray for that every day. Of course, now we know why. 
This is the goal of creation, to bring God into a world where, by default, he is hidden. But nevertheless, even in our current state, there are some valuable insights for us, absent a physical tabernacle, there are insights for us from the tabernacle and its story. I want to read to you from the classic work of Jewish philosophy called Nefesh HaChaim. He says in section number one, chapter number four, the following short line. Certainly, the primary idea of the sanctuary, of the tabernacle, and the Almighty dwelling inside of it, the central idea, who Adam is man. Man is at the center. Man, mean, of course, means mankind. Is at the center of the tabernacle. What does that mean? If a person sanctifies him or herself properly by fulfilling all the mitzvos, you have transformed yourself into a literal sanctuary of God. And God will dwell within you. And he points out, or he adds what the Midrash says, that aforementioned verse that describes the mission statement of the tabernacle, it says, Ve'asuli mikdash, made from me a sanctuary, and then two words, Ve'shachanti, and I will dwell, Be'socham, or Be'tocham, which means in them. It doesn't say, in it, how many tabernacles were there? There's only one tabernacle. So why does the verse say, chapter 25, verse 8, why does the verse say, I will dwell in them? It should say, I will dwell in it. There's one tabernacle and God will dwell in it. That's all the verse says. The verse says, and I will dwell in them. Says the Midrash, I will dwell in the hearts of of everyone that is worthy. Today, we don't have a communal tabernacle or a temple. Nevertheless, the verse tells us, we can transform ourselves into a tabernacle, a veritable replica of the tabernacle. We can perfect ourselves and make ourselves into a sanctuary in which God wants to reside. What an amazing idea. We can transform ourselves into being a vessel in which God can dwell. What are you? What do you stand for? What are you living for? The Torah is telling us that we can become a house, a vessel, in which God himself feels comfortable dwelling in. Just think about how uplifting just saying those words are. How uplifting is it? You, a human, an ordinary human with all kinds of problems and insecurities and shortcomings and flaws. We're not angels, we're humans. In your short stint in this world, you can become something so big, so wonderful, so majestic, so powerful, so meaningful, that your heart can become a mishkan. Your heart can become a seat of God, a seat for God in this world. You could fulfill the exact same function that the Mishkan served. God says, make me a, a Mishkan, make me a Mikdash, make me a sanctuary. So, of course, on one level, he's speaking to the people that are there. Moshe is telling the Jewish people thousands of years ago to build this structure. Says the Midrash, there's something else happening here. He's speaking to us. He's telling us, 
make yourselves into a sanctuary. And I will dwell, I will dwell amongst you in the individuals who accomplish that. The individuals who succeed in making themselves into a vessel worthy of harboring God, those people will become domiciles for God, will be residents for God, will be seats in which God can dwell. What an amazing idea. An idea that can literally change our lives. Our heart has the same potential as everything outlined in these partios. And God's telling us, God's urging us, God's coaching us, He is exhorting us, build it. If you build it, I will come. Build for me a sanctuary, even absent a communal sanctuary, build for me a personal sanctuary, and I will dwell inside of it. Now, it's interesting that the Nefesh Chaim tells us that that is the function of the mitzvos. We have the 613 mitzvos, and the Talmud tells us that that is a perfect replica of the human. The human, says the Talmud, also is broken down into 613 parts, and in the event that you use the 613 mitzvos to perfect your 613 parts, you have rendered yourself into a sanctuary in which God can reside. Equivalent to the instructions to construct the Mishkan, the tabernacle, on a communal level, on a national level, every individual is being told that you can make a personal sanctuary for God inside your heart. An amazing idea. An empowering idea. We don't need to remain small, flawed, imperfect humans forever. We have the tools to make something out of ourselves, to make ourselves into a vessel worthy of harboring God. It's a crazy idea, but what an empowering idea. Think about what kind of a legacy we can build for ourselves. We can make ourselves into a Mishkan. Now, the Kabbalists, they talk all, all about how the actual layout of the Mishkan mirrors a human body. That's, of course, very Kabbalistic. And we know that here at the Torch Center, we're simpletons, we're commoners, we're lay people. We don't know much about the Kabbalistic idea. But the Kabbalists really take this to its kind of the natural evolution of this idea. The Ark represents the brain and the menorah is one eye and the, the, the shulch on the table is the other eye and then there's the mouth. And again, very advanced Kabbalistic ideas. But the principle is we can become a Mishkan as well. What an amazing idea. But let's expand this a bit further. And this is the third concept, third framework of the Mishkan that can change our lives. To build a tabernacle, well, that was a monumental achievement. Of course, on many levels. We read about the intricate work that had to do with wood and with all kinds of metal and embroidery, incredibly exquisite and beautiful creations that needs, of course, tremendous craftsmanship. How do you produce these incredible vessels? You need really highly specialized skills. All this fine, intricate work, this metallurgy, this woodworking, this weaving and embroidery and sculpting. And we had the Rambanare last week's parsha, who says that when Batsala was nominated, the verse says, Hey, look, behold, I'm calling Batsala. He's the one who's going to do it. And the Rabban explains, because Betzalel, just a few months prior, he was a slave. Slaves don't deal with these kinds of words. Slaves aren't artisans. 
they're schlepping cement and doing very coarse physical manual labor. Yet somehow, Betzalel, together with his lieutenants, are doing the most fine work of craftsmanship and artisanry. Is that a word? I don't know if that's a word. Let's scratch that from the record. Acting like very gifted, specialized artisans. What an incredible thing to behold. Behold, look, see, amazing miracle. Maybe even a greater miracle than all the miracles is that there were people who were capable of doing that. The Talmud, in fact, has a great series of stories in the book of Arachan, page 10b, where some of the vessels and appurtenances of the temple were damaged, and they took it to the repair shop, and they went to the best craftsman in all of Egypt, in Alexandria, and they tried to fix it, and they went up to fix it. And it's an amazing thing, what a wondrous thing that the highly trained craftsmen were not quite as talented as Betzalel and his lieutenants, who were only a few months removed from being slaves in Egypt. So if we think about the Mishkan as an incredible engineering achievement, it's, of course, a sight to be seen, a sight to behold. But if you think about the spiritual accomplishment of the Mishkan, it's also an incredible achievement. These people created a dwelling place for God. It was a venue in this world where the Almighty and His presence, whatever exactly that means on a theological level, the Almighty dwelled in this building. How did the nation pull this off? How do you build a sanctuary for God? What goes into the construction of a domicile for God, for the Almighty in this world. So I want to share with you a life-changing Ramban. If this is the only takeaway from this Parsha podcast, I think you've got your money's worth, even if you made a very generous contribution to our fundraiser at givetorch.org. The Ramban says something incredible. The verse tells us, Moshe gathers the whole nation and he's speaking to the whole people and he's telling them, go gather donations of all the gold and the silver and the copper and the various kinds of wool and goats here, etc. The wood, we know the list has been repeated many times. But he describes in, in verse 5 here, Hashem, take a truma, a donation for God. Call nidivli bo, anyone who is generous in a wholehearted fashion, anyone who is wholeheartedly generous, should bring the truma, the donation of God. So there's a donation to God and there's a donation of God. And the Rabban has a short and cryptic comment on this verse. And if you just read the Ramban quickly, you probably would miss it. He says something fascinating. Every person should bring the donation of God with their donation of gold and silver and copper, etc. Says the Ramban, this means you should bring the lofty donation. With your lowly donation, you bring your lofty donation. And then he says, this is similar to when the daughter of Pharaoh saw Moshe, the baby in a box floating on the Nile, and she opened up the box and she saw him with the boy. And Rashi there tells us that she saw the divine presence with the boy. That is a reference to this lofty, elevated gift of God.
What he's saying is something fascinating. How did they get the divine presence into the tabernacle? Whenever someone brought a donation, they actually brought two donations. The wholehearted donors, generous benefactors, who brought the gold, the silver, all the various materials needed for the Mishkan, they brought two donations. They brought a donation to God, and they brought a donation of God. There was the lowly donation, and there was the lofty donation. And the lofty donation, that is the same thing the daughter of Pharaoh saw with Moshe. The daughter of Pharaoh saw that the divine presence was with Moshe. What the Rabban is telling us is that every person, deep, deep, deep within them, in the deepest part of their existence, in the deepest part of their heart, has a deep and intimate connection with the Almighty. The divine presence exists deep in the soul of every person. And when people brought a donation, they brought the gold, but together with the gold, these wholehearted, generous benefactors also brought that part of the divine presence that was within them, the lofty donation, the donation of God, they brought that with them. And how did you have the divine presence coalesce into the Mishran? Every person, with their donation, contributed their heart as well, contributed the part of God, so to speak. Again, I want to be very careful. God doesn't have any parts. Part of the Shekhinah, as it's called. The part of the divine presence, that closeness that they deeply have within them, that intimate, irrevocable connection that they have with God, they unearthed that from within them, and they gave that towards the Mishkan. Very, very, very deep ideas here. Every person donated the Shechina, so to speak, the connection that they have with God, they donated that as well to the tabernacle. Now, what this actually means, of course, that's even the next level of probing of this subject. Our sages tell us that the closest place you could find to God in this world is inside the heart of every person. Of course, the verse tells us God made man in the image of God. What that means, I don't know. But Satan tell us that there's something that we have within us that is so close to God. But it's buried deep within us we may not even be aware of its existence. And the people who were so wholeheartedly generous, they were able to dig deep into themselves and discover and unearth that part of themselves that was so deeply and intimately connected to the Almighty. And that came along with their physical gift of gold and silver and precious wool and wood, etc., What an idea. Just an incredible idea that the Ramban is saying over here. What does it mean that a person gave the, the generous of heart? It means they gave their heart. And they gave the gift of God. They gave the part of themselves that was connected to God. They found a way to access that, to tap into that, and to give it. And every Jew gave their connection, and that was all coalescent to the Mishkan. And that is how you created the Almighty dwelling in the Mishkan. We read about this whole story, the whole parasha. It's a fundraising drive. And you know, I said this last week, I like the fundraising drives. It's fun. You make a call. Who has got some gold? Everyone wants to give gold. Amazing. The Ramban is telling us there's something much deeper happening over here. This is not just an appeal. We need some wood. Anyone's got some wood. We need some copper. Does anyone by any chance have reddened goat skins? 
if that's what this was all about, it could have been done more quietly, get a few machers, as they say, get a few people who have the access to the materials. Why do we have to read about this? The Rambans are revealing something so much deeper here. Everyone is giving the gift of their own heart and their own connection with God, the truma, so to speak, of God. They're taking that and they're giving it to the temple. And together, that is amassed in the physical tabernacle. And that's why there's a complete connection of God in this building. It's just an incredible idea. We all have the Shekhinah, so to speak, within us. We all have a point within us on a very, very deep level that is inseparable from God. And there's a way, says the Ramban, to take that, to unearth that, to expose that to the world, to unlock that tremendous holiness that we have within us. And the way to do that is by giving wholeheartedly, giving your heart. We're very guarded. We're very protective of ourselves. We're all scared to be vulnerable. With the Mishkan, people gave themselves, they gave their heart. They were able to tap deep within to themselves and access this part of themselves that's just the absolute depth of who they are. That point where is that Salomon became the image of God, where that lies in a person. They were able to discover that, bring it forth and bring that, give that, donate that together with their physical gift as well. There are gifts that can be given with your hand. You have gold. Here's a gold chain. Here's a a silver ingot. Take it. Here you go. That's a gift with your hand. The verse tells us, the Ramban explains, that these were people who were generous of heart. Yes, they gave the physical gifts as well, but they gave their heart as well. And that gift of the heart constituted the presence of God in the tabernacle. Fascinating idea here in the Ramban. Of course, it's a very advanced idea. I promised you, I said, we're biting a fourth that we can chew. How do we process this idea? What do we do with it? It's just incredible. Just unbelievable, life-changing idea. My grandfather, Blessed Mary, pointed out that this same word of Nidiv, lave, appears by Abraham. Abraham was the first person to do that. Abraham was the first person to discover that depth of connection that they had with, or that he had within him. And really the, the way that we change and the way that we become great and the way that we transform ourselves and the way we are able to accomplish change in our lives and we're able to really tap into our potential and unearth all of that greatness within ourselves is by following this idea of discovering what's within us on the deepest level. Together with the gold came the heart and the shechina, whatever that means, embedded within it. To me, this was just a a radical, life-changing idea. And I think this connects with the previous idea. You know, we said that you could still build a Mishka within you. The idea of the Mishkan, the idea of the tabernacle is not divorced from us today. We can still build ourselves into a Mishkan. Here, the Ramban's telling us that even with the original Mishkan, it was built from the person. It started off with the people who gave their heart, who dedicated their hearts, who contributed the divine presence that they had within themselves. That is what fostered 
the divine presence dwelling in the Mishkan. What an idea. You read this idea, it's like your whole life has changed. Your entire life has to be assessed anew. We all have such tremendous holiness within us. Holiness powerful enough to effectuate the Almighty dwelling in the tabernacle, in the temple. And there is a way, there is a means to uncover that. It's called Nidiv Lev. It's to give your heart, to give the part of you that you feel so maybe insecure and vulnerable about. If you open that up, that's it. You're unearthing the most powerful parts of you. That Salam the image of God is within you. The point of view that's most connected to the Almighty, that can be unearthed. That can be exposed. That can be brought to the surface. That could even be given over. But once you access that, your potential has been unlocked. So to our original question, what does this have to do with us? Why are we all about this Mishkan? We don't have a temple. We're hoping for it. We don't have one. We have three deep lessons. Number one, this is the objective of our existence. Our existence here is to fix the world, to make the world the kingdom of God, to make this world equivalent to the spiritual world. And that's symbolized by the Mishkan. Idea number two, it's still relevant to us because we can still transform ourselves into a domicile for God via the mitzvos. God says, make for me a sanctuary and I would dwell within you. And that is still feasible today. And finally, we learned this amazing Ramban, just amazing Ramban. Very advanced. I'm acknowledging it's just so advanced. It's getting into the, just the, the, the infrastructure and the mechanism of how we actually change on a fundamental level. How was the presence of God actually established in the Mishkan? It was done via this process of giving over your heart. Giving your heart together with the gift came the heart. And in that heart, there already was a connection with the Almighty. And that, when all the Jews did that, you have this Presence of God permeating the tabernacle by giving your heart, holding nothing back. You discover that deep within you, there is already latent holiness ready to just burst forth. If you give that, you create the tabernacle. Okay, let's hit this week's exquisite insight. You know, I feel like what we just did in the actual main segment, it's it's still so advanced. I'm acknowledging that I really want to spend more time thinking about it because it's just such a life-changing idea, but the show must move on. We have to get to this week's exquisite insight. But please, if you have some more understanding of this Ramban, send me an email, rabbi.com. Okay, before we begin the Exquisite insight. I have to add something. This is, I'm speaking now into my phone. So if this does not sound like the usual crisp recording, it's because I left the Torch Center. I got home and I spoke to my brother in Israel, my brother Ellie in Israel, who runs a yeshiva. And I was telling him over what I said in the podcast. I said, I just recorded the podcast in the Torch Center and now I'm home. I'm going to edit it and prepare it and release it tonight. And I told him what I said, and he added something that I thought was so germane and interesting. I said, you know what? It doesn't sound as good when I record on my phone. This is how I used to record in the past. But I don't have my microphone. I'm in my house. I'll say it anyhow, and I'll add it in, and you'll forgive me if the audio quality is a bit poor. He told me that the great Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who is considered, widely considered acknowledged to be the greatest rabbi in the world... He has lots of petitioners. People come and they ask him for blessings and they ask him for advice and they ask him to pray for them. If someone got forbid sick, they would write him a letter and say, could you please pray for this person? So every day he gets lots of letters in the mail. He's still alive today. One of the greatest rabbis of the last hundred years. He's still alive, lives in Israel. Every day he gets hundreds 
of letters in the mail of people pouring out their hearts to him. And my brother tells me that Rabbi Kanievsky does not allow his family to throw those letters out. Those letters have to be buried as if they are books of the Torah. That's what he tells me. Why? Because the people who write them, they pour their heart out. And it has a little bit of their soul in this letter. And even though it's a letter that's a very mundane letter, it's not a Torah letter, it's a letter, you know, maybe with the name of someone who needs a, who needs a salvation, who's, who's sick, who, the great rabbi, please pray for him. Nevertheless, these letters have the soul. They have the heart of the people within it. And therefore they have to be buried as if it is a religious article, like a, like a pair of tzitzis or a piece of tzitzis or part of a tefillin, or part of a Torah book. It needs to be buried in that fashion. So he added, I thought it was really interesting, so I apologize for interjecting this. I'm going to stick it in in post, but I thought it was worthwhile. I thought it was interesting. Okay, let's get back to the podcast and enjoy the exquisite insight. Okay, so this week's exquisite insight comes courtesy of the TR, the laver, which is the basin, the water basin that had the water in which the Kohanim washed their hands and their feet. The end of our parsha tells us, this is chapter 38, verse 8, that the TR was made out of mirrors. It was mirrors of legions. So Rashi tells us, just an incredible Rashi, that when there was this fundraising call to bring the gold, the silver, and the copper. So the Jewish women came with their copper mirrors. And these are the mirrors that they used to beautify themselves, to put on their makeup. And Moshe gets it, and Moshe says, this is not appropriate. This is what the women use to beautify themselves. And they make themselves more beautiful, and more attractive, and more desirable by men. Ah, this doesn't really fit in to the ethos here of the Mishkan because this is there to encourage the Yitzhara. And he said, maybe you shouldn't bring this as a donation. And then Maya tells him, no, no, you have to accept it. Not only are these copper mirrors tolerable, they are my favorite. They are the best. There's nothing that I cherish more than these copper mirrors. Why? Because these are the mirrors of the legions. Through these mirrors, the women will beautify themselves. And they will be more attractive to their husbands. And even though they're working in Egypt and they're tormented and they're slaves, nevertheless, they see their attractive wife and that makes them excited to spend time with them. And eventually, as a result of that, there are legions of Jews being born. And therefore, God says, no, no, you have to take these copper mirrors, and Moshe took them and made them into the tr, the laver in which the water was contained. So this is just a fascinating exchange here featured in Rashi. But what I find most interesting about this is how Moshe and the Almighty had diametrically polar opposite reactions. Moshe thought to disqualify these copper mirrors. This, this is just, this is disgusting. This is for the Yitzhara. This is inappropriate. You can't bring this to the Mishkan. And God says, no, no, no. Not only is it tolerable, it's okay. These are my favorites. There's nothing better. This I cherish above all. What is the essence of the disagreement between God and Moshe? Why did Moshe say, it's a big problem, you can't bring it? And God says, no, no, it's the best. So, I think the answer is, let's frame it from this angle. The Talmud in the book of Sukkah on page 52a quite memorably tells us as follows. In the future, the Almighty will take the Yetzahara and will slaughter it. The Almighty will slaughter it in front of the righteous and in front of the wicked. To the righteous, the Yetzirah will appear to be like an unconquerable mountain. 
And to the wicked, the Eitzharah will appear to be like a strand of hair. And both groups, the righteous and the wicked, will be crying. The righteous will be crying, and they'll say, how did we overcome? How did we conquer this imposing mountain? And the wicked will cry, and they will say, how did we trip over this strand of here? How were we unable to conquer this strand of here? And this is a fascinating Talmud for a variety of reasons. Of course, maybe the most important question is, how is it possible that the Almighty is slaughtering one thing, and to the righteous appears to be a mountain, and to the wicked that very same thing appears to be a strand of here? And that is a major subject of one of the chapters of my book that just recently came out upon a 10-stringed harp available wherever great Jewish books are being sold? That's one question. But the whole idea of the mighty slaughtering the Yitzhahara, such a fascinating idea. The Baal Shem Tov points out that the word used over here is to slaughter, doesn't say to kill, to destroy, to slaughter. It's the same word used to describe ritual slaughtering of a kosher animal. You have a cow, it's a kosher animal, you got to slaughter it. If you shoot it in the head, it's dead. It's a kosher animal, but you cannot consume it. You slaughter it properly. Now it's kosher. Says the Baal Shem Tov, this process in the future, the money slaughtering the Yitzharah, is taking the Yitzharah that's like a kosher animal that just needs to be slaughtered and rendering it into kosher. The Yitzharah, that's a force engineered by God to try to tempt us to sin. But there is a process via which it can become kosher. There is a version of it when channeled properly, it can become kosher. The Midrash tells us that when the Almighty saw his creation, the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was tov me'od. It was good. Tov means good. Me'od means very, very, exceedingly good. Says the Midrash, tov, that's a reference to the Yetzer tov. When it says that God looked at his world and he saw it was, behold, very good, when it says good, it's a reference to the good inclination. When it says me'od, very, very exceedingly good, that is a reference to the Yetzer hara. The Yetzer Tov, the good inclination, is good. It causes us to do good. It's good. It's an unalloyed good. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination, if you slaughter it, if you make it kosher, if you process it, it becomes not only good, it becomes very, extremely, exceedingly good. Tov Ma'od. Moshe looks at these mirrors and he sees Yetzirah. And he says, Yetzirah, evil inclination, this is no place here in the tabernacle. And God says to him, you know what? You're right. This is the Yetzirah. But this is a slaughtered version of the Yetzirah. This is the Yetzirah being used for a good purpose. This is the Yetzirah being used to establish legions amongst our people. And therefore, there's nothing better than this. This is even better than the Yetzirah Tov. Yetzirah Tov is good. The Yetzirah, the evil creation, when done properly, when slaughtered, when channeled properly, is even better. Moshe says, this is something that I don't want. This is bad. God says, no, no, no. This version of this thing is the best. I cherish this more than any other. And therefore, indeed, it was used in the Mishkan. But I'm thinking, perhaps, this is really what the tabernacle is all about. The tabernacle and the subsequent temple, it's about taking that part of us that could be bad and slaughtering it. We take an animal, an animal symbolic of our, of our animalistic self, and we're taking it and we're slaughtering it. We're rendering it 
into something holy. We're elevating it for God. We're committing what could be misused for evil into something wonderful and beautiful and holy and transcendental. I thank you all for listening. Did you enjoy this as much as I did? I'm in the Empty Torch Center, recording it late Tuesday night. What a joy. What a delight. Thank you for listening. If you have not yet done so, please consider supporting our annual campaign, our annual fundraiser. Again, we have only one fundraiser a year. That's it. You won't be hearing about this. Please do for another year. Get on board. Support the great work of Torch. GiveTorch.org. There's going to be a link in the description of this podcast. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for making Torch a beacon of life for the Jewish people. Have a great day. Have a wonderful rest of your week. And please, God, an incredible, sensational, terrific, stupendous Shabbos upcoming. And with help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. As always, me will just is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.